Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On July 11th, I spoke with an all-star panel of court watchers who weighed in with where they think the Supreme Court stands today and where it's headed in the future. The Supreme Court's new conservative supermajority, including three Trump-appointed justices, is a juggernaut with the power to change how we live, everything from voting rights to health care. Today, we'll analyze their first term together to predict where they could be headed and explore ideas for court reform. Plus, we'll preview what could happen in the fall when two hot-button issues, abortion and gun rights, are on the docket. Here to help us do that are three of the best court watchers in the business. Joining us are Melissa Murray, professor at the NYU School of Law. Nina Totenberg, NPR's award-winning legal affairs correspondent. And Pete Williams, award-winning justice correspondent for NBC News. We're so grateful to have all of you with us. Nina, I'm going to start with you because we do want to get into the granular decisions that came out of this term. We want to talk about what's what the future holds for the court. But first, I want to start with what I heard your analysis be about this last term, which was that what we were looking at was a conservative supermajority car that was driving in first gear. Now, can you explain what you meant by that? Well, if you have six very conservative justices in the majority, you can afford to lose one and still have a majority. And they did that this term, but they held their fire in many cases that could have been, from the liberals' point of view, worse. So they were driving in first gear, sort of like they had a new car and they weren't showing us what they could do in third gear until maybe the last day. And okay, so this is this is critical because as the court so often does, they signal what lies ahead with what they did on the last day of the term and, and tell us what that was. Well, on the, on the last day of the term, they gutted the Voting Rights Act completely, what was pretty much left of it, the landmark Voting Rights Act that was enacted in 1965 and then reenacted five times subsequently by Congress. I think the most recent was in 2006. And then in a second case, they, for the first time, cast doubt on uh, law, state and federal laws that mandate disclosure of federal and state campaign contributions. Now, they didn't do it directly. It was an indirect case. It was about about disclosure of large money contributions to nonprofits uh, that had to be disclosed to state attorney to the state attorney general's office in uh, California on a confidential basis. But they nonetheless, they did it. They struck it down as a completely unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment. And in so doing, they cast doubt on the disclosure provisions of the of the whole federal election campaigns uh, 
law and state laws that are similar. And laws that had been upheld specifically were the disclosure provisions upheld even and especially by the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who was an iconic conservative. So if I understand this correctly, what that's the significance is that that could open the door to a seismic shift in big money, dark money in elections yeah. uh, with, you know, is that what is that what it would do? I think that's right. Certainly, for sure, dark money. Uh, and maybe, you know, I don't know. I know that we call it light money. The only reason we would call it light money is you can see it now. You can see who's giving certain kinds of campaign contributions to elections. And um, it, I think it, it casts some doubt on that, too. Let me ask Pete, what is your headline out of this last term? My headline is that the Supreme Court can be pretty unanimous as long as they don't do much. Uh, some of the some of the cases in which the court was pretty unified was with little tiny decisions. For example, the free speech case of the high school student who said some naughty things on the uh, on Snapchat and and got punished. The court said that was an overreach by the schools, but it didn't go so far as to say what the rules really are for uh, campus speech and whether it can still be regulated if it's off campus. In the Obamacare case, the court was uh, seven to two, again, uh, uh, not saving it for the third time, but not saying very much about the central question in the case, which is, is the individual mandate unconstitutional? They just said that the red states that sued can't can't say that they were injured because the individual mandate really doesn't do anything anymore. So how do you say you're punished by something that doesn't do anything? Uh, And the court also uh, brushed aside some potentially hot button issues. They let stand a transgender teen's victory in Virginia that said schools uh, that that overturned a policy that said schools cannot allow students to use the bathrooms matching their gender identity. They declined to take a potentially hot button case on the question of religious exceptions to discrimination in the case of a Washington state florist. And remember that uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination was, you know, widely criticized by liberals who said she's going to get on the court and kill Obamacare. And that's not what happened. You um, before you started to work at NBC in 1993, you served in the George W. Bush administration. And so did former Solicitor General Gregory Gary, who had a comment on this term. He talked about the fact, you know him, you're smiling. Do you, do you know Mr. Gary? Well, he's a, he's a frequent advocate before the court. So yes, we all see him a lot in the courtroom. Okay. But he said that he thought the court had gone out of its way to uh, strike consensus. He thought he was, he was really glowing and raving about the fact that, that across ideological lines, the court really agreed a whole lot. But you've made it pretty clear those were on the very, or the sort of lower profile cases. In the case about voting rights, that's a 6-3 decision. In the, uh, I think the other, the donor case, that was also a 6-3 also decision. Six-three. So in the yeah. really guts, okay, so, so is that the difference? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's certainly right. Uh, I think uh, many people would t- say that this court really was a 3-3-3 court with the three liberals, the three most conservative justices, and the sort of controlling three in the middle, which would be the chief justice and two of the Trump nominees, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, you know, Amy Coney Barrett turned out to be much more, to use an overworked term, moderate this term. Was this just sort of freshman anxiety and she's going to really show it uh, next term as she did in the last two cases? Who knows? She wasn't the rip-roaring conservative 
rip it all down uh, person that many people either hoped she would be or feared she would be. Well, that sets you up, Melissa, because you wrote a piece in the Washington Post that the headline said it all, which was, don't be fooled. This is not a moderate court. Why did you say that? Well, I wanted to add a friendly amendment to Nina's comment. It's true that this was a supermajority that really didn't do everything that it could have done given the votes that it had, but they did do quite a lot. This was not a term that was characterized as judicial restraint or judicial minimalism. In the area of religious liberty, they really moved the doctrine far to the right, um, further than it has been in some time. And although Amy Coney Barrett um, did not have the term that many expected, she did tip her hand in a number of key ways. Um, in one case, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, she wrote a concurring opinion in which she seemed to disagree with Justice Alito about the historic underpinnings of free exercise, but she nonetheless noted that there was significant criticism of a cr critical First Amendment precedent, Employment Division versus Smith, and that she perhaps thought that this should be reconsidered, not necessarily in this case, but in some case going forward. So. I think it's a little early to say what she will do. And it's also perhaps um, too much of a stretch to say that we know exactly what the supermajority is going to do. This is a very limited term. They did not take as many cases as they normally do. And we haven't even considered what they did on their shadow docket, that docket of emergency appeals that are decided without the benefit of full briefing mm -hmm. and oral argument, where there were actually quite a lot of conservative decisions, especially in the area of religious exercise and COVID restrictions. But as you know, people on the left-leaning side were tearing out their hair over this court as opposed to folks on the right and conservatives. This is the dream court. They've worked their lives to get this court. Was anybody thrilled with the outcome? I mean, is this a court that, or was it just sort of a wait and see kind of, I mean, who was happy after all these rulings? Well, I think conservatives have quite a lot to be happy about. Certainly in the area of free exercise, um, they are getting some significant wins, um, maybe not the full-throated win that they're hoping for, but some very significant wins. In the area of labor, they got a quite significant win in Cedar Point versus Hasid, which struck down a California regulation that allowed union organizers onto private property for limited periods of the day in order to organize workers. That's been struck down, a major departure from almost a century's worth of jurisprudence on the Fifth Amendment's taking clause and one that maximizes the rights of property owners. Enormous. Um, in the area of free speech, they've made very clear, as Nita noted in Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta, that they believe that the fr freedom of speech includes the freedom to be completely confidential about to whom you are making significant disclosures or significant contributions. And that will, of course, have enormous ramifications for campaign finance going forward. So. They certainly have all of the fixings for a quite significant conservative smorgasbord. They haven't gone full-throated in this feast, but maybe we should think about this term as a kind of amuse-bouche for what's to come. Amuse-bouche, wow. Can I say one thing about the Go ahead, this, Pete. this contributions case? I mean, what the court said, and they so often do, it was a balancing test. They said, on the one hand, you have this California law that requires charities to cough up the names of their big donors, and their, their claim was that the conservatives who attacked this law said, well, people are going to be reluctant to give money if they know that uh, their, their contributions will become public, they'll be attacked, they won't, they won't be as likely to give. So that's the burden on the one hand. What's the justification on the other hand? And the court said there really isn't much. The court said the state very seldom actually uses this data to find fraud, which was the justification that California offered. The court did say that 
elections may be different, that um, maybe there's a better government justification for wanting to have uh, these contributions being made public, both to political campaigns and referendums, for example. I think my colleagues here are right that this decision in this California case certainly casts some doubt on that, but at least there are the seeds of why they might uphold those limits in the future. I want to talk about John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, because Adam Liptak from the New York Times talked about the fact that carrying on with this car thing, he seemed like he'd sort of lost the driver's seat and that his, his influence seems palpably diminished. Is that a fair assessment, Nina? I think we'll know more later uh, that I would say last year he had the controlling vote and there were at least three cases, I think, in which they were big and important cases. And he was the fifth vote and it was five to four court. Now there's a sixth vote so he can get outvoted. And he does sometimes get outvoted. And sometimes he may note that and sometimes he may not. We saw that in the COVID cases, certainly very clearly, where until Amy Coney Barrett came on the court, the, the court as a whole was saying to states, under the police powers you have under the Constitution, in the in the midst of a pandemic, these are rules you can make for religious institutions too. How many people can go to church if they, if at all, and uh, under what circumstances, etc. And the minute she got on the court, she flipped the outcome, and it became five four the other way. And so you you know that's that's just plain hard evidence. Melissa, do you agree with the assessment about Judge Roberts? I think it's certainly the case that he's no longer the swing justice on the court. And I think, again, as Nina said, you don't need him any longer to form a conservative majority. And the liberals can't really make a majority with him unless they're able to get another of the conservative justices to join him. And in that sense, he is a little bit diminished. But as chief justice, he does retain the prerogative to assign the opinion where he is in the majority. And so I think there is some power in that. And I think we saw that in this term. So in Fulton, on one of the religious freedom cases that we previously discussed, um, he was in the majority there and he wrote the opinion in Fulton and seemed to stave off a more maximalist opinion that Justice Alito would have preferred to have written. So there is, I think, some control there. But again, he is much more diminished than he has been in past terms. Pete, I want to ask you, though, about uh, the alliances, the shifting alliances. Did you see anything noteworthy in terms of um, allies, sort of uh, Alito and Thomas, or was there any kind of jockeying? I know Kavanaugh now is allegedly right in the middle, or that's the way he's being seen, Justice Kavanaugh. uh, not merely allegedly, actually. You know, there's always these statistics that come out of the end of the term, and Brett Kavanaugh was the justice most often in the majority. That doesn't mean he's the swing justice, because as Nina has pointed out, uh, there's not, you know, one defection from the conservatives still leaves five, and that's what you need to win. But he was most often in the majority. And I I do think that he and and Barrett and Roberts, on many of these cases, were the sort of moderate middle. Alito, Gorsuch, and and, uh, Thomas were the ones who, for example, they said in 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 the Fulton case, we should overrule this precedent that came back from the case of Oregon. Two uh, people that worked for the state of Oregon, they got arrested and convicted of uh, ingesting peyote, and they said, well, we need this for sacramental religious purposes. And the Supreme Court, in a decision written by Antonin Scalia, said, guess what? There is no religious exemption to laws that apply to everybody. 
that was what was tested in the uh, in the Fulton case and in the uh, uh, Philadelphia case. And those three conservatives said, you know, we need to overrule that. And that's where the three moderates said, not yet. In, in addition to Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito being in that sort of minority to overrule Employment Division versus Smith and, and Fulton, they were also the three justices who were willing to hear the ACA case on the merits. Um, that case was dismissed for want of jurisdiction. But those three justices said that there should have been grounds for jurisdiction and that they would have heard the merits of this case and presumably would have found fault with the ACA. So even during a pandemic, there was at least some quarter of the court willing to take on the question of whether some portion of the American public should be deprived of health care during a major global health crisis. And I think that that case actually tells you a fair amount because none of the business groups that joined the attack on the ACA in earlier cases joined this case. And none of the prominent conservative academics joined this attack on the ACA case. All of them thought, frankly, in the words of one of them, this is a nutty thing that it's gotten this far. But three members of the court arguably were, were willing to, in fact, use this case in these circumstances to overturn what the court had previously done in upholding the ACA. And I think that tells you something about the division among the conservatives, with some of the conservatives very aggressively wanting to make their individual views known and almost inviting other cases. Melissa, our, we have video questions during this broadcast. And the first one is really going to the crisis of confidence that many Americans have in the Supreme Court. And I'd like you to take a first crack at that question. Here it is. Hi, I'm JJ from Philadelphia. Do you think the Trump Supreme Court appointees have a predetermined partisan agenda? Or do you think they're simply proponents of judicial restraint? I think we all know that the Trump White House um, very much outsourced the vetting of judges at both the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts to the Federalist Society. They had quite a lot of input from the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation in the selection of judges. And the judges that were selected at all levels of the judiciary during the Trump administration were purposely selected to have certain conservative viewpoints. Um, you know, whether or not those viewpoints are manifested in ways that evince a kind of judicial restraint, I think is a different thing entirely. But they were selected because of those conservative viewpoints. And elections matter, and that's usually how things go. Um, I think what we have seen over the course of the last three years, though, is that the judges that have been placed on the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts from the Trump administration have been perhaps more aggressive in asserting their conservative viewpoints on their courts. And in some cases, that can be constrained because in many cases, they're multi-member courts at the courts of appeals and at the Supreme Courts. But in the district court level, the trial court level in the federal system, it's simply just one judge. And so you, you're able to have, I think, more of an impact in that degree. So I don't think these were judges that were selected to be restrained. I think they were there to push a particular vision of the Constitution and the rule of law, and I think they're doing that. Anybody want to add to that? Yeah, I would say the answer to it well, is, is I, neither. Know. They, I don't think that they have followed <laughs> yeah. the Trump uh, uh, blueprint, and nor do I think that they've been restrained. There's, there's nothing restrained about Justice Alito's opinion in the, uh, in the, in the voter uh, contribution or the... Um, the, uh, the last case of the term on, on the California uh, contribution case. 
But remember, Neil Gorsuch was a Trump appointee, and he said that the civil rights law applies to same-sex discrimination and gender identity discrimination. And remember that these three Trump appointees didn't lift a finger to accept any of the election challenges that the pro-Trump people brought to the Supreme Court's doorstep. Well, I think I think this is the one place where probably the Chief Justice did have some uh, genuine leadership. Uh, you know, he he was, you know, he he did not want this to be Bush versus Gore. He wanted to, and I think many other members of the conservative majority thought the last thing we want to do is bring into question this institution and this branch of government when something like 50 lower courts had upheld the certification of state officials. And I think there was considerable relief on the court across ideological grounds that they didn't have to get involved in this. Which brings me to law professor Richard Hazen, who wrote a piece very, very strong, saying that this court is is dangerous to democracy. Actually, he went he went beyond that. He said it's hostile to democracy. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. In this case, it was Section 2, because they'd already sort of eviscerated Section 5, I think. What does this say? What is the hostility to the Voting Rights Act? Well, um, you know, John Roberts has been hostile to the Voting Rights Act since he was a young aide designated to work on this um, in the Reagan administration. And he wrote a memo recommending that President Reagan veto the, the law, the reenactment of the law, and, and Reagan didn't take his advice. But um, I, I, I think that Congress has a very different or had a very different view when it enacted this statute, that there continued to be serious voting rights suppression and infractions that it wanted to do something about. And a majority of the court does not believe that. Pete, do you have an answer as to why they seem so, this is the mission is to really make, put it on life support, the Voting Rights Act. Rick Hassan, by the way, whom you quoted from, is indisputably one of the nation's leading experts on election law. So, you know, his opinion, I think, counts for a lot. But uh, it's it's curious. Justice Alito's opinion says, uh, let's think about what he said here for just a moment. He said, yes, it may be true that when any any time you change the rules, you always run the risk of of increasing the burden for voting. But if it's just a little burden, he said, and if there are other ways to vote, so for example, if it's harder to vote by mail, but you can still vote in person, then it's not really, it shouldn't be seen as a violation of the law. And that was, I think, a pretty radical departure on the Voting Rights Act, which by the way, had never really been tested in the context of election law changes. For the most part, section two of the Voting Rights Act in the past had been used to evaluate what happens when states redraw the boundaries for congressional or state legislative districts. And, and that's where most of the law was. So the, the court was really going in a new direction here. And he also said, you know, look at what the situation was when the Voting Rights Act was originally passed. There wasn't much voting by mail. So the fact that the states go out of their way at all to allow you to vote by mail is a big deal, he said. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Professor Hassan thought this was a very radical decision. Alito cited the law in 1982 as sort of the benchmark. 
And there was great concern in 1982 before and certainly after about the decreasing number of people who voted. And there was a real effort in this country to expand the vote. And it was a, a joint effort actually by the Republican and Democratic parties, I would say until very recently when Republicans appeared to believe that if you expanded the vote, that was a threat to their winning. And they voiced that as a concern about fraud, about which there was a genuine concern, I would say, in 1982, but there's very little evidence of fraud today. And in fact, you see people counting the vote on camera. Well, well that was actually a theme that came out in the oral arguments on these two Arizona voting challenges. Um, Justice Barrett asked a question of the attorney representing the state of Arizona, like, why do you need these restrictions? Why is this so important to you? And he basically said this was important and we're concerned about this because we want to win. And we know that for the Republican Party in restricting these particular kinds of voting mechanisms, whether it's ballot harvesting or having limitations on the precincts where individuals can vote, we actually get an advantage. And when he said it, there was sort of a kind of hush, like he kind of said the quiet part out loud and Justice Barrett quickly moved on from it to ask a different question, but it was really striking in that he said it quite plainly in open court. I want to talk about something else that's been elevated in the court, and that's religious freedom. It's been said that that is something that's very, very clear, that religious freedom will trump individual rights or well-being of society, and that that handwriting is already on the wall. Nina, do you agree with that? Well, I don't, you know, I think it doesn't trump individual rights. After all, religious liberty is an individual right. The question is, how do you analyze the Constitution's religion clauses? And for many generations, the court analyzed the, those clauses with the idea of separation of church and state being king. That was the most important thing. And now that is not important at all. What is important is the free exercise of religion. So that if you want to, for example, refuse to bake a cake for an LGBTQ couple, that is your right to the free exercise of your religion. In one case, um, it came out that way. Uh, I don't think the court has definitively decided this question when a state says you can't discriminate based on uh, gender or something other than race. But remember, there was a time in this country where there were people who said, it's my religious belief that the races should be separate. And I don't think the court would do that today, but it might do something similar for other categories of people because the free exercise of religion is now king instead of separation of church and state. But along the same lines, there's a new law in Arkansas that basically says medical professionals can refuse treatment to LGBTQIA individuals. And that's kind of what I had in mind. That's the sort of law that does deprive people. I think one aspect of this is something that Nina mentioned briefly. I mean, we've seen the court has really gone in a full-throated direction in, in exhorting free exercise rights while being relatively minimalist about the Establishment Clause. Like, there are two parts to the religion clauses, and the Establishment Clause has really gotten short shrift. But one of the parts of free exercise that I think has also gotten short shrift is what has been a traditional view 
that in exercising your right to religion, you cannot exert a harm on third parties, which is what all of these cases that the court has really punted on has raised. So in Masterpiece Cake Shop, it's not simply that the baker has particular religious views that allow him to um, turn away gay customers. It's that there is actually a harm to the gay customers if his religious views are respected and he's given an exemption from the ambit of the anti-discrimination law. That seems to be the question that the court really does not want to take. What is the relationship between these third-party harms and the view that we should be really maximalizing this idea of free exercise of religion? Next, we're going to turn to the most asked question that I got from friends, relatives, everybody wants to know this, and it's in a video <laughs> question. And Nina, we're going to have you take the first crack at it. Here it is. Hi, I'm Ellen from Connecticut. Thank you for taking my question. What options do Democrats have with a Supreme Court conservative majority? Should Justice Breyer not retire before the 2022 elections? This is an issue the Democrats are quite exercised about, and I understand that. And uh, certain organizations are raising an, a lot of money out of this, but there is precious little that can be done. The only the only way you could limit the Supreme Court's influence as it's constituted today, I think, would be to add members of the court. You can do that without changing the Constitution. Everything else, you need to change the Constitution. I, there are people who argue that you don't need to change the, the Constitution to in order to get um, uh, term limits. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you could. It still wouldn't change anything. Nobody, You can't throw anybody off the court. Furthermore, I don't think that the country as a whole really wants to change the way the Supreme Court is set up right now. If you're going to make that case, it's going to take years. And the country would have to be very angry with the court in order to do that. So what do you say about the potential for Justice Breyer retiring? My guess is that he would re he'll retire next year sometime, but I don't know. Uh, he's about to turn 83. He's probably in better physical shape than I am. He's, you know, very fit, very, very, I don't see that he's dropped any stitches. And in fact, he had a very good term. He wrote a number of very important opinions. Um, and so, including the ACA case. So, I, I don't, you know, we now, I think we can safely say he's not going to retire now, but he might announce his retirement for the end of the term, any, any next term, and he might do it sometime during the term. Uh, that, that would be very, a very considerate thing to do for the Biden administration, giving them time to get somebody confirmed and so that at the end of the term, that person could take over. I agree with that, by the way. And I, I would just say, I think we can pretty well rule out, rule out a Breyer retirement now. And I think all the other calls for him to step down were, were counterproductive. Yes, he knows the experience of Justice Ginsburg. But as Nina says, he's healthy as long as you keep him away from a bicycle, <laughs> which he doesn't seem to be able to handle. And I also think that Justice Breyer thinks that he has, uh, and may well in fact be right, that he still has some ability to shape even the opinions of his conservative colleagues. So I think he feels he still has a role to play. I mean, Justice Breyer spent probably the longest 
stretch on the court as the junior justice where he was responsible for answering the door at conference and really got assigned the sort of dregs of the opinions. Now he's the most senior justice in the minority, which means he gets to assign opinions when he is in the majority, less likely to happen, but occasionally does happen. And we also see that he's getting better opinion assignments. So he, again, as, as Pete says, is sort of at the height of his powers. This is the golden time in his tenure on the court. And I can't see him relinquishing that, at least not right now. I have to ask, because what we're not talking about is Senator McConnell talking about how he will block, regardless of what happens, any Biden nominees going forward, whether it's in 2022, 23, 24. This whole politicization or perceived politicization of the court is something that I can't believe the justices themselves aren't aware of. Melissa, is this something that influences them in any way at all? Or is it just something that they keep their heads down, they're, they're, they're doing what they need to do, and it's not a factor? Do you have any insight into that? I think it's pretty clear that the court, despite being quite monastic in its work, is aware of what's happening outside of one first street. I think we saw that last term in the abortion case, June Medical Services versus Russo, where the chief justice, who has never been a fan of abortion, has been quite skeptical of abortion rights, nonetheless joined the four liberals to form a majority to strike down a Louisiana admitting privileges law that was virtually the twin of a Texas law that had been struck down four years earlier in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. And he made clear there um, he wasn't doing it because he changed his mind about abortion. He did it because of stare decisis. I also think it was because if the court had upheld that Louisiana law, it would have made the court look quite political, that the change in the composition of the court, the addition of Justice Kavanaugh and the switch for Justice Kennedy for Justice Kavanaugh had really changed something in the way the court viewed abortion. It was really that it was the composition of the court that had changed. So I think that was a place where you saw the court being quite canny about public opinion and its perception of its own legitimacy. And I think there are other places where we've seen that. I think the ACA case um, is another place that we saw this term where recognizing what's going on in the country with a pandemic, recognizing the calls for court reform and structural reform of the courts, they held back and trimmed their sails a little bit. Nina, at this point, we want to talk about just for a, a few minutes about what's happening at the Department of Justice and the fact that after the former administration, uh, where you had a president that treated the DOJ as uh, his personal law firm on occasion and um, the, his attorneys general as his personal lawyers, Damage has been done, as we we're finding out. It's like peeling an onion. There are more allegations and revelations, um, it seems, every week. What do you, I mean, can the Justice Department be rehabilitated in terms of its reputation? And what, what's it going to take to accomplish that? Well, I think that's a two part question. I think if anybody can rehabilitate it and institutionally rehabilitate it, it's probably Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, who is so widely respected by everybody, and is himself a sort of moderate Democrat, an incrementalist, and an institutionalist, much like Chief Justice Roberts in some ways. Um, whether the public believes that is something else, especially since um, anything that the Justice Department is likely to do that uh, is not what a policy-wise is not that is not what a, a 
Republican administration would have done, you, there's likely to be a lot of howling about. But the person who knows the Department of Justice much better than me at this point is probably Pete Williams. <laughs> Over to you, Pete Williams. Okay. Well, I, 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 I agree with everything Nina would say. I, I would just say there's a couple of examples here. First of all, yes, I mean, the reputation of the Justice Department is is to some extent in tatters. But remember, the day-to-day -day work of the Justice Department goes on. We now have something like 520 criminal cases that have been fire, uh, filed against the uh, uh, people who occupied the Capitol on January 6th. That's a huge chore. The Justice Department is charging ahead with that. You see a reinvigorated Civil Rights Division filing a challenge to the Georgia voting restrictions. You also see a lot of sort of policy differences. The uh, Biden administration has pulled back a lot of these legal challenges that have been uh, occasioned by the Trump administration's more harsh immigration rules. Uh, you saw, for example, the Justice Department in essence say, forget it, we're not going to pursue a lawsuit against John Bolton for his book about the Trump administration's uh, uh, foreign policy. So in, in many areas, you see some policy changes. Uh, and I think Merrick Garland you know, I think, look, look, the one criticism on Merrick Garland actually weirdly comes from the left who thinks he's not being aggressive enough to be the anti-Trump attorney general, but that's just not his style. Melissa, let me ask you, uh, when you're looking at these abuses of power going after the records and information about Congressman Adam Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell and, and trying to pressure people to overturn election results, do you think that the effort to root out or, or punish or hold somebody accountable is strong enough. How do you feel about uh, Merrick Garland? I think um, Merrick Garland is an inspired choice to lead the Department of Justice. But I think um, what's really notable, and, and I don't think the administration gets enough credit for this, is that they really pack the Department of Justice with some stalwarts um, for progressive causes. So Lisa Monaco, my colleague at NYU, um, Kristen Clark, who led the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Benita Gupta, who is a stalwart civil rights lawyer and NYU alumna. All of those are the like right underneath Merrick Garland and leading the Department of Justice. And I think that goes a long way in sort of showing that even though you may have a more moderate incrementalist at the helm, there are still those who are sort of pushing for these major changes below. And a lot of work needs to be done. The Department of Justice really was more politicized than it has ever been in its history during the Trump administration. Um, it was deployed for all kinds of partisan purposes. And I think right now the effort is to try and rebuild. And some of that will be more public going after some of this. But I think a lot of it will have to be internal work to build morale and to also put up the scaffolding that will make that kind of thing no longer a possibility going forward. Pete, uh, last summer we were fortunate enough to talk with former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, who talked about what it was like to witness abuse of power or norms being knocked over when he was in the Justice Department. And I want to play a clip of that and talk to you about it on the other side. Here it is. Coming into the Justice Department in 2009, I was 39 years old, an Indian American, working for an African American attorney general. Eric Holder, and going and walking into the Supreme Court of the United States to defend the Voting Rights Act of 1965, an act that had, you know, the blood of Americans on the bill, the pages of that bill. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. we passed that act. We had that act survive for a long time. We've had great attorneys general 
of color, not of color, but who are committed to the rule of law from both political parties, we can get back there. And there's a groundswell in this country that wants that desperately. And yes, I know that right now our hearts hurt um, as they should, um, but our hearts hurt after the bridge in 1965 too. And um, after so many of the painful things that Richard Nixon did, but we found a way past it and we will again. Pete, when you were eight years old, you had a newspaper you started called The Needless News, <laughs> for which you charged... Accurately titled. Uh, you charged a penny for it. <laughs> you went into journalism. There is a point to this. You went into journalism and you have a reputation. You've been celebrated for being even-handed and measured and restrained. So when you look at the Justice Department now, what do you think it takes to bring back their reputation? Well, I think I think it's it's you, you, this is this is a game of inches. Uh, you don't do it with grand gestures. You do it case by case. Uh, you do it policy by policy, um, and some of it reflects different views of different administrations. For example, right now Merrick Garland has instituted a suspension of seeking the death penalty in federal cases. He wants to look at this question of whether that you can rightly put someone to death humanely with a single drug as as, as uh, Bill Barr had ordered as, when he was attorney general. And he also has questions about the fairness of it as Janet Reno did. So that's a, that's a policy difference. You see always a change from Republican to Democratic administrations uh, pulling back or moving forward on, for example, antitrust cases. That tends to be a, a, a political view. But yes, I think it is some, uh, the reputation issue is something that you get day by day, case by case, policy by policy. You just can't do it by grand gestures. We are at the place in the broadcast where I'd like to talk about what's coming up on the docket. And Nina, I'll start with you talking about the abortion case that is going to be considered. I know that reproductive rights activists were hugely upset about the fact that they're even taking this case and are concerned about whether they're going to look at Roe as settled law or precedent or whether we're going to lose Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of anxieties, you know, about that. On the other side, the, the folks who are in favor of getting Roe are getting rid of Roe are very, very pleased about what's happening. So, what do you think it signals that they're taking this case? Well, this is a case uh, from Mississippi that the lower court opinion conforms with the law as it is today. So. The only question in my mind at this point with a six justice supermajority is whether Roe and Casey, which is the subsequent decision that cut back just a bit on Roe, whether those are overturned quickly or it's a sort of bit by bit and in five years it's gone. Melissa, you testified at just Justice Kavanaugh's hearing and we're very blunt about the fact that he would not look at Roe as settled law or that as a precedent, that he was basically the vote that they were looking for at that point, uh, I think it was the fifth vote, obviously, to, to overturn, utterly, I think you said, utterly overturn uh, Roe v. Wade or abortion rights. The point is, how concerned are you about what's coming down the pike? I think I'm pretty concerned. I think anyone should be pretty concerned. Um, the fact that this case was taken, given that the Mississippi 
abortion law, which prohibits abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, would clearly violate existing Supreme Court precedents like Roe, like Casey. And the fact that the court has agreed to take this up suggests that they're willing to reconsider both of those precedents. The one sort of silver lining all of this is the timing. Um, this case would be decided by June of 2022, right on the eve of a really important midterm election. And I wonder if the Chief Justice, again, wanting to keep the court out of the fray of electoral politics, might want to trim back a little bit to avoid having millions of American women marching to the polls with the demise of Roe versus Wade on their mind. So I can imagine that this is a case where the court will uphold the Mississippi law and basically eliminate the idea of viability as a salient concept in the court's abortion jurisprudence, but keep Roe versus Wade intact as a matter of principle. And then after the election in 2023 or in the 2024 term, there is another case, and there are a number of cases percolating right now that could certainly do this. They will take up the question again and perhaps fully finish the job at that point. Pete, let's talk about the gun rights case, because that's also a hot button issue. What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so this is a very curious area of the law. It wasn't, remember, through our entire nation's history, it wasn't until 2008 that the Supreme Court finally said what the Second Amendment means, which is that it does pro provide an individual right to have a gun. Now, they said it was for self-defense at home. And so the question ever since has been, well, what about the keep and bear part of the Second Amendment. This is a question that has repeatedly come to the court's doorstep about laws to carry a gun out in public, either to get a concealed carry permit or open carry. And the court has just stayed away from that until they got this six justice supermajority, because perhaps they were always, the, the conservatives who wanted to go there weren't sure they had a fifth vote. As, as Melissa noted, it takes four votes to grant a case, but you don't grant it unless you think you've got that fifth vote to win. So the conservatives must think they have that fifth vote somewhere. Uh, and it's a case from New York of two people who wanted to carry guns for self-defense purposes. And New York has a law that says you, you, you can only get a gun if you can get a permit. And to get a permit, you have to show some special need that not just self-defense. And that's the real question here. So this is going to be a very important issue. And, um, you know, I don't know how full, the, how far the court is going to go. But this is an area that um, will be fascinating to watch because they've stayed away from this for so long. I want to talk a little bit about potential court reform that people, term limits, uh, adding justices, subtracting justices. Pete, President Biden appointed a 36-member commission to, to look at this issue of whether we could add judges. As it has been stated, it's not stipulated in the Constitution how many judges there have to be. Do you think that commission is going to go anywhere, or is it basically just to sort of placate people that maybe we're looking at something? I would say that if you were uh, planning your vacation so that you would be around when that report comes out, don't worry about it. I, th I think you're right. I think, I think it was l largely symbolic. I think it was an attempt to show the progressive wing of the party that the president heard them. But he's already himself said he's skeptical about changing the makeup of the court. And what would they say? They, they could say you could increase the size, as Nina pointed out. They could say justices ought to be term limited. But I doubt even if they say that there's any appetite in Congress to do it. Look, anytime you have a 36-member commission, anytime <laughs> you have a 36-member commission, you have to be sure that they won't agree on much. 
<laughs> Melissa, you've already come out against term limits very strongly. Could I ask why? Um, so I, I wrote a piece in the New York Times many years ago for their Room for Debate feature where I argued that um, term limits, while attractive in many respects, uh, ultimately, I think, are quite unattractive. And mostly because uh, you could really sort of emphasize the opportunity for gamesmanship on the court. So a justice who perhaps was reaching the end of her court-appointed term uh, might move the law or try to move the law in a more um, forceful direction um, in order to maximize the opportunity that he or she had at that moment, um, maybe to take advantage of a particular majority. You might also have situations where individuals um, might be in a position to leave the court and go into more lucrative opportunities, and that in turn could shape their behavior as justices. So for those reasons, um, I noted that I was skeptical of term limits, but that was many years ago. And I think um, going forward, you know, term limits has certainly been something that's been on people's minds. Adding members to the court is another idea for structural reform. But I would just emphasize that there are a lot of other minor tinkering that people could do to the court that might stave off some of this. So Rick Hassan, who you mentioned before, has argued that one of the ways that we could limit the court's influence in, in cases involving the law of democracy is to strip the court of jurisdiction to hear cases involving challenges to the voting rights law, to give Congress more power to enact laws and to have those laws stay on the books rather than to be cut down or trimmed back by the court. So jurisdiction stripping, I think, is one aspect of structural reform that doesn't get a lot of play. It's a dangerous thing to strip the court of jurisdiction, I think. Um, I understand it in the in the context of a de of democracy, but um, it's about as dangerous as as letting people think that judges and justices in particular are just partisans, and if you switch who's on the court, everything will change. Because what happens then is people have no confidence in the court as an institution. And Chief Justice Rehnquist used to call the court and the independent judiciary the crown jewel in in our constitution but if it becomes not independent looking and just looks like a an institution that's uh, built to be a political hack people will have no confidence in it and you need confidence in the court to carry out the law melissa last question for you in terms of stre strengthening democracy whether it's jurisdiction stripping or whatever it is, if you could wave that proverbial magic wand, what would you do to try and deepen democracy through the court? Well, if I could wave a magic wand, I think I would go back to 2013 and wipe out the court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which eviscerated section five of the Voting Rights Act, that pre-clearance scheme that required states that were changing their voting laws to first have those changes pre-vetted and cleared with the Department of Justice or with a three-judge court. Um, so that would be one step. That was a major, uh, just a major diminution of the Voting Rights Act, that landmark civil rights legislation. Um, I would also, I think, shift my focus from the court back to the other side of the street, to Congress. Um, there are two major bills that are pending before Congress that would perhaps expand opportunities to vote throughout the country. Um, those should get significant attention. Right now, I think they're held up through the polarization in both the Senate and in some parts of the House. Um, and they're really important bills. Um, if they're passed, question whether or not they won't be challenged, whether they won't wind up in the Supreme Court. But again, I think it is an initial first step and one that would signal to the country that the administration and the country is taking voting rights quite seriously. 
something that was really very striking and touching. I watched a replay of you doing the live coverage of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's funeral. And you're, you're such a stalwart and you're just, you're so predictably solid. And you were going on and you were talking about the fact that the service was going to reflect her three loves, her family, the law, and opera. And you choked up and actually I think Andrea Mitchell had to start talking or you you sort of really seemed overcome and it's something I'd never seen happen to you on the air. How do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg right now would be talking to people who are dispirited about what they see happening with the court. People think the court's broken. People think it should be changed. It should be reformed. How do you think she would try and calm people down? Well, I'm going to save a little time here for Nina to answer this question, too, because she was much closer to Justice Ginsburg than either of the rest of us. But I, I would say, you know, first of all, yes, that's true. I did kind of lose it there. I was sort of carried away by the emotion of the moment. It was quite majestic. And, you know, just everything that had happened, it happened so quickly. uh, It was a little overpowering. She's already talked a little bit about this. You know, she was very down on the idea of adding more justices to the Supreme Court. I think uh, I think she would be obviously not at all pleased by the direction the court was having, uh, especially in the in the area of reproductive rights. I'm not sure what she would say the answer is, uh, but you know, she, she's, she also was very political. I'd say she probably would say the ultimate answer is if you don't like the way the Supreme Court's going, uh, elect more people that are in your frame of mind who will appoint more justices. That would be my guess. And Nina, I did save you to last because I know you have a five decade friendship with Justice uh, Ginsburg and she actually officiated at your wedding even though she was not in terribly good health at that point, which once again just demonstrated her ironclad commitment and and, and her just, she was a force, right? So she basically at one point said something. There was a quote, justices can change. And I'm ever hopeful that if the court has a blind spot today, its eyes will be open tomorrow. Is that as good a sentiment as we can hope for to try and give people some sense of optimism about the future? I think that that was her view, that the court is never going to get too far out in front of the country, and that if it ever did, it would be really bad for the country. And in her time in office, which was, you know, she was... uh, she was appointed to the high court in 93, but before that she served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia for 13 years. So she was on the court a very, a judge for a very long time. And in an interview I did with her uh, in 2019, she said very, that she very much opposed the idea of expanding uh, the court or the various other proposals, because she said, if people think that a judge is there only because he or she is expected to vote one way, that that's the reason for their being there, Um, people will lose confidence in the court as an institution. And she was an institutionalist, very much like Chief Justice Roberts. She was very worried about the court. She was worried that it was getting too out front in a direction that she didn't agree with and she thought was destructive, but she was also worried 
that the reaction to that, the backlash to that would hurt the court as an institution. And so I, uh, I figure she's, um, you know, Jews don't believe in an afterlife, but Ruth Ginsburg uh, broke a bunch of rules in her life. So I think she's watching this with great uh, care. And uh, if she can do anything, she will. <laughs> On that note, I just want to extend our heartfelt thanks to our incredibly generous guests for donating their time and talent, and also for not just living up to their advanced billing, but actually surpassing it. So thank you all very much. Thanks for joining us today. Until we see you back here next time, for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens, as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast, or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground. 